Hello, friends. I, too, would like to welcome you to today's service and to all those watching online. It's truly a joy to be here, so thanks for adding your energy. I would like to begin today's service from a reading from Whispers from Eternity, Paramahansa Yogananda's book of prayer demands and poems. Thou art slowly rising on the horizon of my mind. O Father, I pray that my storm-tossed soul may find the silver lining of thy presence behind the clouds of my indifference. May the moon of thy hope ever gleam upon my heart. Thy inner light slowly rises above the horizon of my mind. Mists of ignorance lift before the moonbeams of thy love. O Father of light, my sorrowing soul beholds, rejoicing thy shores of bliss. I have to admit, friends, that a couple months ago, Shama and I were looking for some entertainment and we stumbled across the movie Titanic. And so we dived into this epic, which is typically looked at as a love story, which it is, but it's also quite historical. And it sort of inspired, out of nowhere, a curiosity to look up survivors of Titanic and to listen to interviews of those who went through that incredible experience. And this particular interview really stood out because this woman who was nine years old at the time of Titanic, she boarded the boat with her parents. And yet she was telling the story of how her mother, after hearing all the hype that Titanic was unsinkable, she said, how foolish to tempt God. Of course it can sink. Why would I want to get on this ship when everyone's telling me it's unsinkable? But this is interesting about the intellect and intuition because everything around her was saying it's the best ship, it's unsinkable. The intellect would be taking in all the information. It's like, yeah, by golly, it's going to be the greatest experience of my lifetime. But she listened to this. And so this feeling inside her heart only grew with intensity because her husband bought tickets and she boarded the Titanic. But she listened to her intuition. So she started to sleep during the day, and she stayed awake during the night. And at the moment Titanic hit the iceberg, she felt the shudder, she grabbed her daughter, she went to deck, and she was on one of the first lifeboats out of there. And so intuition is that moment of clarity that bursts through the clouds of our minds, that helps us to see clearly. It is self-born. It's not based on the rather cumbersome effort to gather all information from this world and analyze all the facts and base our decision on that. It is this clear inner knowing that if we listen to, it can save us from great danger. I had a similar, I shouldn't say similar experience, not at all, but (laughs) as far as, (laughs) it had to do with the ocean, but thank God it had nothing to do with the Titanic. But when I was just getting on the path, I was learning how to surf. And one thing you should do when you're learning how to surf is learn how to protect yourself when you wipe out. Because once you're underwater, you have no idea where your surfboard is in relationship to you. But I didn't know that. So I was underwater. I wiped out. And when you learn how to surf, it's a fairly large board you learn how to surf on. And and yet, at that point in my life, this inner voice of intuition started to be more recognized. It started to become more prominent in sort of guiding my footsteps along this journey of the spiritual life. 
But what was amazing in this experience, so here I am underwater, completely still, from a moment of chaos, of wiping out, I'm underwater, completely still. And a force, and I kid you not, it was a force that was beyond any of my control, beyond my conscious awareness, first came saying, cover your face. But it wasn't just the calm saying, you should cover your face, brother. You should you, you do yourself well. It was a force that almost commanded, cover your face, as my arm started to move on its own. Cover your face. And as soon as it did, the sharp fin hit my arm and cut my arm through my wetsuit. And I was so stunned by this experience. I washed up on shore and I was just sitting there. What was that? What was that power far beyond what my mind could grasp that was tuned into a reality that my senses could not perceive? And I started to wonder. And I feel that that's intuition that we all, it's a universal experience. And that's the goal of intuition. It's to not only help us make the right decision and land the right job or find the right spouse or make the right turn or find the right parking space. Sure, all those things help make life more comfortable. But the true purpose of intuition is to awaken our heart's longing for this higher reality, that the curiosity of what was that voice turns into a yearning. I want to get close to that voice. I want to live by crystal clarity every moment of my life. And as we begin to feel this dawning of understanding in our hearts, our entire life's trajectory changes. Because no longer are we satisfied with living through the senses, analyzing through the mind. We want to feel truth in our hearts. And that's why intuition is simple. Because it's not based on any condition outside of ourself. It's simply a pure inner knowing of who and what we truly are. So if we really want to deepen intuition in our lives, we have to accept and fully embrace where intuition is taking us. Yogananda had this often expressed and shared dream, or I think it may have been a vision, of a dusty marketplace. And I often think of this in my life, and I invite you too to meditate on this experience because it really highlights our journey to self-realization. So Yogananda was overlooking this incredibly dusty, incredibly busy marketplace with all the hustle and bustle of any you know, materialistic marketplace. You know, people haggling to get the best prices. People, shopkeepers are trying to get the most money. People elbowing their way to get their last product on the shelf. But India adds a special flair because then you have the elephants and the monkeys and the dust and you had the incredible chaos of India. But occasionally somebody would stop in front of Yogananda and look at something behind him and was filled with such awe. And Yogananda saw the, the whole demeanor of this person change. And he heard the person whisper, oh, how beautiful. But then doubt assailed him. But it's far too great of a journey. And they turned away and returned back to the hoard, the, 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 the dusty marketplace. And after a few times of this occurring, Yogananda grew curious. Well, what is so beautiful? And what's taking people's breath away? So he turned around and he saw this incredible mountain. And on top of this incredible mountain, there was this pristine garden, completely untouched by the chaos of the world below. Such serenity that he felt his heart leap from his chest. 
He wanted to experience that peace. He wanted to live in that peace. But then that doubt entered his mind. It's far too great of a journey. And he could feel his energy begin to drop from that inspiration, but he caught himself. It's far too great of a journey to accomplish in a single step, but I'd rather die trying to than to return back to this marketplace of meaninglessness. And it's that intuition within all of us that is that inner call for us to rise, that inner call for us to embrace that journey which leads to the top of that peak of self-realization. And so we're at this perennial crossroads. Do we say yes to that inner call? Do we say yes to that messenger of intuition that will guide our footsteps to that eventual liberation? Or do we say no to it and crowd the depths in court security? And so it's interesting because we have to make that decision almost moment to moment in our lives. Until we are finally free, we have to keep reminding ourselves, what is the purpose of my life? And how do I travel? How do I transverse this human experience so that I don't further enmesh myself in outward consciousness, but I liberate myself from ego consciousness? You know, it's interesting because the marketplace of life is very complex, and yet the spiritual life is quite simple. There is this man who is walking down the sidewalk, and he observed this quite beautiful bird in a tree. And he was just so awestruck by the beauty of this bird. And in that moment, he just felt the pure delight of life and beauty. But then he realized, well, hey, I need to capture this moment. I need to be able to preserve the joy I am feeling now. So I might as well buy a camera so I can take a picture of this bird. But if I take a picture, I better upgrade the lens so I can make sure I get all the details of the feathers and intricate colors of this bird. Then I can, I can print these and frame them. Maybe I can sell them. <laughs> I can earn enough money then to travel the world and take photos of all the beautiful birds in the world. I can become a world-renowned bird photographer. <laughs> and before you know it, friends, well, does this sound familiar? I mean, come on, like, let's be real. But before he knew it, the enjoyment, the simple, intuitive enjoyment of the moment was gone. And he placed all these layers of conditions on his pure enjoyment of the present moment. And that's the complexity we constantly find ourselves in. We constantly see with ego consciousness that we're seeking the fulfillment of our heart's longing outward in things, outward in experiences, and we place all these conditions that do nothing but agitate the heart. You know, Patanjali said that restlessness is caused by seeking our fulfillment outwardly. And it's the very restlessness that gets stirred up by these experiences that go up, they go down, we get fulfillment, we get disappointment, and we're constantly in this state of fluctuation. That doesn't sound like simplicity to me. That sounds rather complex. Because as soon as we have one desire fulfilled, we think we got it. But it doesn't fulfill us. So we're off to the next chase. Then off to the next chase. Intuition is that simple return back to the joy of ourself. To be open to the living reality of God's presence in the present moment. Nothing else. And that just requires no conditions outside, 
The only condition it requires is our watchful inner gaze, that we turn the searchlights of our hearts inside and we look for our answers at the core of our being. Yogananda said, one desire leads to 10 more desires and 10 more desires. There's a multiplication effect of worldly desires. So watch it. But naturally we have inclinations of the heart, don't we? And we often hear to what avail is suppression. Very true. So it's not about suppressing our desires or denying our desires. It's simply redirecting our desires to experiencing the enjoyment we seek on higher levels of spiritual attunement. When I was getting on the spiritual path, again, this, as we all know in our own lives, when we begin to meditate, we begin to look for truth, that intuition begins to awaken. And I had a really interesting experience that I would like to share with you. So when I was young, very young, my dad told me if I could blow all the dandelion seeds off of a dandelion, a wish would come true. So as a young boy, I was out there blowing every dandelion I could find, you know, <laughs> looking for the wish to be granted for the toys and the trips and Disneyland and whatever you can imagine a young boy's mind would go to. But it's interesting how habits form because from that sort of initiated energy, I found myself later in adolescence, later as I grew older, returning back to the dandelion. And when more real life problems started to hit me, where no matter what the outward experience I had, no matter how much outward success I may have experienced, no matter whether I was popular or not, it doesn't matter because my heart was still longing to be happy. I was still feeling I, want, I needed security. I needed to feel at home. I needed to feel love. And so I brought that to the dandelion. Poor neighbors, they must have had this invasive weed just <laughs> popping up everywhere, you know. But nonetheless, it initiated a certain longing of heart. And then so fast forward years later, I was sitting in my car in the Bay Area, warming up my car, ready for work. And I just felt this deep peace in my heart. And the windows were halfway down. And this gentle breeze blew. And all these dandelion seeds filled my car. I swear to God, it filled my car and they were swirling around me. And his inner voice said, now you have found the source of all that you ever sought. And that inner source, as we all know, is at the very heart of who we are. You know, it's said that intuition leads us to the dawning of understanding that we are a perfect reflection of God consciousness. That those eight aspects of God, that love, that peace, that joy, those are living realities at the core of ourselves. And so long as we are looking for that fulfillment outside, we're, not, we're going to be missing the point. But if we turn the searchlights of our hearts within and we work towards becoming increasingly still, those qualities will become our Those qualities are our qualities. You know, what are we really looking for in a way? We often hear that we're all looking for bliss. We're all looking for joy. But it's interesting. I was thinking about this in preparation for this talk. I love ice cream. But some people hate ice cream. Ice cream's the same, but it's what we put to the ice cream that matters. 
So I've associated a pleasant feeling with ice cream. They've associated a negative feeling. But it's still just frozen ice cream. That's all it is. You know, nothing changes. So it's what we... We're really looking for states of consciousness in life. We're looking for that love, that joy, communing with Om, experiencing that divine light in ourselves. So why limit our enjoyment of those experiences to specific conditions that only complicate our lives, that only further continue this outward momentum that essentially leads us nowhere? Look within. You know, if we continue to remind ourselves, this is where the simplicity of intuition really comes, is that the more clear we are that our fulfillment lies in ourself, then everything in life becomes a radiant opportunity to deepen that path in our lives. I recently changed jobs, and I never knew how much there was to do in Ananda Village. Oh my God, the responsibilities are endless. It's towering. And yet, I realize this is all for moksha. Every experience I have, every challenge I face, every opportunity that comes is simply yet another reminder to rest my heart in God. And it doesn't matter what happens to us externally. Because duality is in full force. We're going to have pleasant experiences. We're going to have unpleasant experiences. Why identify with them? As Swamiji, Swami Kriyananda would say, that joy is the middle point between two sorrows, and sorrow is the middle point between two joys. It's constantly fluctuating. So rest in God in your own inner self. And we find in that inner self the simplicity of this perception of who and what we truly are taking over. Because as soon as we taste the nectar of divine consciousness, the world grows pale in comparison. So intuition is simple so long as we simplify our own lives. As Yogananda said, simple living plus high thinking leads to the greatest happiness. I'm going to add a little caveat to that. I hope it's okay, Master. Simple living plus high thinking leads to the deepest intuition. Because the more we can simplify our our own lives, the less we can rely on from out here for our happiness, the more energy we'll have at our disposal to pour into our sadhana. Once Swamiji was asked, is it difficult to find God? And, you know, the way the story was described, there was, I think it was in L.A., actually, and there was quite a few long-time members of Ananda there, and often would hear Swami say, you know, finding God is the most difficult thing, you know, in the world, right? And when he responded to this, he said, no, no, it's not difficult at all. And everyone's ears like, Swami? He's like, all you need to do is focus all your energy at this point. That's it. And if we can accomplish that, we'll merge in spirit and it's over. Game's done. You know, jackpot. We found it. But... Naturally, that's the whole of the spiritual path, is how do we reclaim all of our energy that has been so conditioned to be scattered to the, through the you know, leaves in the wind? How do we reclaim that energy? And I invite you, every day of your lives, every moment you can remember, to remind yourself, it's God, God, God. 
Everything we are looking for can only be found in God. And the more we return back to that simple perspective of the disciple, that there's one purpose of our life, moksha, liberation. And God will communicate the steps that we need to take through our intuition, through our satsangs, through our friendships, everything in life is a messenger for that singular goal, for us to withdraw our energy from this world and lift it up the spine and offer it to the infinite. When I was thinking about this talk, I was drawn to an episode in the autobiography of a yogi, which is so beautiful, and usually, at least I have not heard them, these two episodes of Yogananda's life, sort of discussed in the same conversation, and yet they are very pertinent. So we know, reading the autobiography of Yogi, Yogananda had this burning desire, yearning, to be led to the feet of a God-realized guru. And many of his meditations, many of his prayers, he just longed to be guided to his guru. And yet, at the same time, he also had a desire to go to the Himalayas, to seek God in the remote caves of the Himalayas, to be out there completely away from life in solitude, seeking God. So fast forward, after many attempts to go to the Himalayas, never happened, he found his guru, and his guru received him as a disciple. Oh, what joy. I'm sure if we all look at, we just celebrated Swamiji's discipleship anniversary. What joy to remember that moment when Master drew us back to him. So here's Yogananda in his guru's ashram, about to receive spiritual training. And what did Yogananda ask? Master, can I go to the Himalayas? Can I seek God in solitude in the caves? And Sri Teshwar, being a true guru, didn't want to thwart the will of his disciples, said, sure, but you're not going to find anything there. You're just going to find a bunch of sadhus struggling to survive. Go ahead. Have at it. So Yogananda left his guru's ashram to go look for something he thought was going to be more fulfilling than being at the feet of his guru. And so he went to the Himalayas, a great journey. And it seems like in the book, a very short time. But it was actually quite a long time that he was in the Himalayas, practicing his sadhana, seeking God in the remoteness of these mountains. But after a while, he didn't find what he was looking for. His best efforts left him empty-handed. So he returned back to Sri Yukteswar, a little bit crestfallen. And he knelt before his guru. And what did Sri Yukteswar do? touched him over the heart, received his disciple and blessed him. And Yogananda broke into this ecstasy, this experience of cosmic consciousness. And he describes this experience as this all-flowing I, I, everywhere, one with every atom of creation. The bliss of God was his bliss. The fulfillment of incarnations was experienced in that very moment. And after this incredible experience, the thought came to him. I cognize the center of this imperium as a point of intuitive perception in my heart. And from that intuitive perception flowed all the fulfillment he had ever longed for. So what does this mean for us? So long as we look for our fulfillment on this outward stage of life, 
So long as we think, only this I need, if I only had that, then I will finally be content. We're only going to be energizing the very delusion we're here to overcome. Let us simplify our life and return back to the feet of the Guru. Whenever we find ourselves straying, keep calling him. Keep praying, keep meditating, keep awakening that yearning of heart that it's in God alone, it's in Master, the bestower of all blessing, the bestower of all fulfillment that we've ever sought. There is this beautiful story that was shared with me uh, of a monk in India. And he was in seclusion. And he felt this longing for a hug. Have we all been there? But I would imagine that could have presented a little bit of a struggle for a monk to deal with that desire. Because he could have easily have said, I'm a monk. I shouldn't want to feel this. This isn't, this isn't relating to my vow, right? And suppress it. But what he did instead was he brought it to meditation. He brought it to God and Guru and said, Lord, I feel this. Help me to feel your love. Help me to feel your embrace. And as he was meditating that evening, doing his Kriya practice, sitting in the stillness, awakening that intuition of God's living presence, he felt this grace descending upon him. He felt enveloped by Divine Mother's embrace. And what a beautiful reminder that God is not trying to deny us anything. He's simply trying to remind us how to go about our seeking, how to go about living our lives so that we remind ourselves and each other that our life is but for one purpose, to live in this superconscious joy and to share that joy with all. Many blessings. Offered candles
must I cry or day? I am yours, ever yours. Will you Yeah.